to the rest of you. Yes. Good to see you all here. Um, we've been traveling through the book of Acts. We've been meandering, if you will, seeing how the church began. Um, it's pretty cool to watch all of the historical narratives fulfilling what we are the recipient of today. We're here because of what the church began and Jesus Christ accomplished in the book of Acts. Well, today is opportunity for us to really look at the meaning of all of it, the meaning of Christmas. We're a confused society, to say the least. If you think you're going to try to figure out the meaning of Christmas by scanning television or radio or the internet or whatever other device you might have, <laughs> wow, there are a lot of confused people out there. So I'd like to just take a few moments today and look through and see what is the real meaning of Christmas. I'm going to use a text that would be, where did you read out of Matthew or Luke today? Matthew 2. Matthew 2. And I could go to Luke and Matthew. Those would be the Christmas stories, if you will, the narratives. But I want to dig deeper than that. We know of a baby born in a manger. We could go to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and we'd see that that was actually prophesied. What are the chances of the Messiah being born in a little town of Bethlehem? We could go on all of those prophecies. There was one in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, which is spoken of in Matthew that literally talks about, God said, I will give you a sign. A virgin will give birth to a son. Whoa, that's a sign now. A virgin giving birth? And that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That was fulfilled, people. That was fulfilled. But who was Jesus? There would be many explanations. Of, I'm going to read something that is on the edge of blasphemy to delusional that came from a religious organization. But we'll do that after I read the passage to you. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and we'll read verses 6 through 11. Those of you that have been with us in our journey through Acts, um, we saw how, how Paul had spoken to different cities around the world, and the Philippians was a church that he began. This is a letter that he wrote back. It was a, a message about joy. But look at this. This is a deep passage. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to verse 6. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." May God add a special blessing in reading of his word. Let us just pause for a prayer before we begin our study together. Father God, uh, in this moment right here where we are, may we see Jesus more clearly than we've ever seen him. May we see the depth of everything and who he was. Father, thank you for the word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit guiding us. And this morning we would ask that exclusively he would just do just that. Father, you have our attention. We're here because we want to worship you. We want to uplift you. We want to give you praise and honor. Father, may you be glorified. 
because of what happens here this morning. As the Spirit speaks to us through the Word, Father, may we be changed. May we be Jesus to a world that doesn't know him. We'll thank you for what you're going to accomplish in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen. I would like to read something that maybe epitomizes the sense of confusion about Christmas. This was written some years back. It was an article written by a leader in the Episcopalian diocese from Los Angeles. This is what was written, and it is a quote. There are few causes to which I am more passionately committed than that of Santa Claus. Santa Claus deserves not not just any place in church, but the highest place of honor, where he should be enthroned as the long-bearded ancient of days, the divine and holy one, whom we call God. Santa Claus is God the Son. You better watch out. You better not pout. Santa Claus is coming to town. He knows whether you've been bad or good. He slips into the secrets of the heart as easily as he slips down the chimney. Santa Claus is God the Father, the creator of heaven and earth, in whose hand is a pack, is, is a pack bursting at his seams with the gifts of his creation. Santa Claus is God the Holy Spirit, who comes with a sound of gentle laughter with a shape like a bowl full of jelly. And he comes in the night to sow the seeds of good humor. Santa Claus indeed deserves the exalted and enthroned place in the church, for he is God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. I've seen him in the toy store, even saw him in the car on the freeway the other day, and when I saw him with his crazy beard and his baggy suit, I saw more than the seasonal merchant of cheap plastic toys. I saw no less than the triune God. I hope you can see him too, unquote. Friends, that is craziness. It totally is, but delusional at best. What happened? What happened? Where's Jesus? The real Jesus. That's why I chose to take Philippians chapter 2. We'll find the real Jesus. One of the things that's been probing at me is not only nonsense such as that, but literally the Jesuses that have been preached around. There's a lot of wrong Jesuses. Uh, in fact, Paul in 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, yeah, 2 Corinthians, which is a passage that we sometimes use a little deeper into that chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, this is so insightful. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and I would like to read verses 3 and 4. This is so true. Uh, Paul speaking to the church at Corinth. He spent more time... Uh, working with the Corinthians probably than anyone. They lived in a city that was steeped in the most carnal, immoral conditions that you could even possibly imagine. And this is what he wrote in this chapter, verse 3 and 4, but I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through subtility, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now watch. For if he that cometh preaches Another Jesus. I'm here to tell you, folks, there's a lot of another Jesuses going on. That was, I just read one that's craziness. That's not even Jesus. That's craziness. And yet, it will be seen as another Jesus. I was looking up uh, on the internet, and I'm sure there's more than or less than or whatever, but uh, it was talking about in this century people that have declared themselves to be the incarnation of Jesus Christ, or the second coming. 
It, it's, it's weird. It's so weird. There's one in Brazil. He was an ex-taxi car, a taxi driver that has a, a surrounding of 40 disciples that are pushing him around in a cart of which he's sitting on, and he looks like supposedly Jesus. That's not the Jesus we read about. That would be another Jesus, wouldn't it? Where are we at in 2023? Soon to be 2024. Who is Jesus? Our world is seeking to know who Jesus is. The vast amount of people do not even know who he is. We know as we're gathered here in church, and most of the messages today, which are, they're, it's great. There may be a nativity scene. There may be the fact that Joseph and Mary traveled from afar. They went to the city of Bethlehem, that little town. And on that night, she gave birth to the Son of God. Emmanuel, that word just keeps ringing a bell within me. Uh, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that, that prophecy. Emmanuel, which means God with us. I don't know what that does to you, but to have God living amongst us, that's what Philippians chapter 2 is about. Well, let's dive in and take a look. Let's see who Jesus is, according to the scripture. Philippians chapter 2 begins in verse 6, who, which would give entrance back to verse 5, respecting Christ Jesus. Christ, the word would mean Messiah or anointed one. This is of the Old Testament. Literally, the Jews were looking for this one to come. This was the one. This Messiah, this Christ, Christos, the anointed one, the one that would lead them would be the king. It says who? He, Christ Jesus, being in the form of God. One of the first things that we want to notice is the fact what Jesus gave up. Uh, In no way is he any less, this is one of the things, before I go any further, something that does seem to be really gripping to me. Is this another Jesus? Is who they make this Jesus to be? He's either all man, or he's all God, or neither. And the scripture very clearly, that's what we're going to look at today, very clearly tells us he is all God and all man. Do I fully understand that? No, but I wouldn't want to understand everything about God. Because if I can, my God is too small i got to get a God that can get me on the other side of death. i got to get me a God that can really work me through any possibility of sin that I am failing at. That's the kind of God I need. That's the Savior I need. The really cool thing is God actually decided in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, it says that before the foundation of the world, that's a long time ago. Before the foundation of the world in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, He, God, chose us in him, Christ Jesus. Oh, my goodness. Now, that's planning ahead. (laughs) That's planning ahead. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God really said after Adam and Eve had sinned, they had sinned big time. They had traded God as king of their life for themselves. We are victim to that right here today. Every single one of you here and every child ever born absolutely is enthroned within the throes of sin inherently through the decision that Adam and Eve made. And if you doubt that, just watch a little child. You do not have to teach a child to be selfish. It comes naturally. It comes very naturally. In fact, it reminds me of a story that I read this week. Uh, a mother was making breakfast for her two sons. Kevin, who was five, and Ryan, who was three. And moms, you're smiling because if you were making pancakes, you know that Kevin and Ryan, you can 
change the names if you'd like, were vying for who gets the first pancake. <laughs> you might hear all, I'm the hungriest, I'm the oldest. You, you could hear it all go on. And that was taking place in this morning. And the mother was going to try to use it as an opportunity to teach these two young boys. And so she said this, Kevin and Ryan, if Jesus were here right now, he would say, go ahead and give that pancake to my brother. I'll just wait. Doesn't that sound good? Kevin, being a little bit older, a little more thoughtful, says to Ryan, you be Jesus. <laughs> We're like Kevin, aren't we? <laughs> Who will be Jesus? Uh, Bruce Carroll wrote a song, or he sang the song anyway. Who will be Jesus? I'll read the lyrics as we get to the end of this session today. Um, as we're learning about Jesus today, what is our gift to God? There's a young girl that was passing out gifts from the Christmas tree, and she got all done, and she said, well, where's the gift for Jesus? Isn't he the one who gets left out? Uh, that's a question I want you to continue to revolve in your minds is, what can I give Jesus this season? Who can I be Jesus to? Well, let's look at what Jesus, once again, Philippians chapter 2. It says that he being in the form of God, being. Let me say this, and there's no way this could even happen, but I want it to be so clear in your minds. Jesus literally set aside his sovereign position to do what needed to be done, as God said in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I kind of trailed off there, but Adam and Eve had sinned. There was consequences for that sin. Uh, the first and foremost was the fact that, how would you like to have been walking through the garden with God? Probably sipping on a lemonade. That's, that's, not, that's not there, but it would be as pleasant as you could imagine. And literally, when sin came, that ceased immediately, because that's what sin does. It breaks fellowship with God. But in the consequences that came forth, and there was consequences to man, there was consequences to woman, uh, God said there's good news coming. There's help from heaven. And literally in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, was the first place we see in the Bible that God speaks of the forward coming of a redeemer through the woman's line. That took a long time. There's people that say the second coming or the, the coming of Jesus Christ has been talked about for literally generations. You're right. God said that the Savior, the, heaven, the help from heaven was going to come probably about 7,000 years ago. And it happened. And the second coming will happen as well. He's not giving up on anything. He's promised, for, as God, it says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, God, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. He's outside of time. In fact, when he created the world and all that we know, and little that we, and there's so much we don't even know. They don't even know the confines of the universe of which he spoke into existence. That's the God that gave up his position, sovereign position. Jesus Christ, who created man, that threw him on a cross and nailed him solid there. That Jesus is who we're speaking of, and he set aside his position, not his deity. Mark that carefully. Anybody that says Jesus is not all God, walk away. That is not the Jesus. That's another Jesus. 
He is all God. But he gave up all of the position that he had under the sense of Godship. Let me put it this way. This may seem odd because it can't happen. If Jesus failed, I'm sorry, if Jesus ceased to be God, he would be no one. Let me say it one more time. If Jesus ceased to be God, he would be no one. Now, that can't ever happen because he's eternal. My point is this. Jesus has to be God because he is. That's the essence of what that says, being in the form of God. Now, the word form in the Greek is morphe, M-O-R-P-H-E, morphe. It's an internal fixed position. A schema would be an external condition. We'll find that actually. He put, him, he put on the fashion of man. That would be an external. He became like men. It's interesting that he was not made a man. He became as a man. He was not created. Now, the other thing is to be in a form or a morphe, to be essentially everything about him was God. It was not something to grasp, nothing to seek. Now, if you go to Isaiah chapter 14, it's interesting that Satan was grasping to be God, right? I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will be like God. Jesus didn't have to be like God. He was God. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. As much as someone would like to change that. The difference between cults and Christianity is literally this. They make something less of Jesus than he was. That's another Jesus, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We just read it. He gave up his position. He gave up his position. The deity never went anywhere. Emmanuel, God with us. His being, what he is, the very essence of his nature was all God. Unchangeable. In fact, uh, as he was walking the, this planet, in John chapter 8, verse 58, he says something that certainly wasn't reviewed or uh, taken with very much kindness from those that listened. In fact, they picked up stones after he said this. He said something in verse 58 of chapter 8 of John. He said, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. (laughs) You want to get a religious people on fire, that'll get her done. Uh, Not that I was, I am. Present tense. There's no beginning, there's no ending. That's Jesus walking this planet. He said that. He's all God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Another interesting, as you're cruising through there, you may want to pick up on 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says, At my first answer, I'm sorry, that's verse, here we go. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, for righteousness. The scripture speaks of the truth of who Jesus Christ is. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15 goes on to say, But if I tarry long, and thou mayest know how, lo- how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and a ground of truth, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed upon the world, and received up into glory. That's certainly who Jesus was. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. If you're wondering how to know God, how to see God, 
Hebrews chapter 1 gives us a description. God, who at sundry times and in various manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. That's Jesus. He's all God. And that nature of which cannot be changed, it's a fix. Uh, we are asked literally in Romans to, using the same word, if someone was to ask you, what are we here for? Why are you here today? What would be your answer? There are three questions. If you're here or anywhere, there's three questions you need to ask in life. Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? <laughs> They'll set you going somewhere, how you answer those questions. But why are you here? Uh, literally, an answer for us is given in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate, that is, determined beforehand to be conformed that word is morphe, to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. How do you become like Jesus Christ from the inside? Morphe, it's an inner working. Just as Jesus Christ was all God, that inner nature change comes from within. It comes from within. Let's go back to Philippians chapter 2. He was equal to God equal to God. He was God. There was nothing about God that he wasn't. He could never cease to be God. But not only was he God, he set aside his privilege, if you were, or his position. He also emptied himself. Let's continue. Verse 6, chapter 2 of Philippians, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with him. That's exactly right. He didn't try to be God. He was God. He was equal. But, verse 7 says, He made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Uh, one of the things that verse 7 is telling us, he emptied himself. He emptied himself. All of those privileges, it was a self-emptying, if you will. He abandoned his position not his deity. He didn't cease to be God. But there are some things he gave up. What are some things that he gave? What did Jesus give up to come down and be our heaven's help, if you will? He gave up his glory. It tells us that in John chapter 17 and verse 5, that his words, John 17 verse 5, he is praying to the Father, and he says in verse 5 of chapter 17, the high priestly prayer, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. He gave up his glory for a period of time. It was veiled in human flesh. Um, if you even followed through in the transfiguration, there was a moment then when those three disciples, the inner circle, would have, it was like they, he peeled back the veil of humanness, and God says, that's who he really is. And his face shone, his old being shone as the son of God. He gave up his glory for a time. 
he gave up his honor as well in Isaiah chapter 53. You might write that in your notes. We know of the things that happened to him when he was on earth. They betrayed him. They beat him. They smote him. They pulled his beard out. They crucified him. That's not befitting of God, but he emptied himself. The word's kenosis. He not only gave up his glory, but he gave up his honor. He gave up his riches as well. Let's go to 2 Corinthians, and this is to our benefit. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. <laughs> that is great news. If you're here and you're without Jesus Christ today, literally, he is offering you all of the riches of eternity, of eternity because he came poor to, be, to, to carry your sin load to allow your, his riches to become yours. It's a great verse, 2 Corinthians 8 9. He gave up his glory. He gave up his honor. He gave up his riches. And the one that probably I can't describe for you, I, I know I can't. There's no way for me to do this. This was the most awful part of what he gave up was his relationship to his father for a period of time. His entire life was lived for 33 years going to that time frame when he would have bore my sins, he would have bore the world's sins and literally was hanging on a cross. And for that period of time from noon to three, it tells us that it was dark on this planet. It was dark. Why was it dark? Because as he said in his own words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken? The relationship between God the Father and God the Son was literally severed for that period of time for three hours as God the Father could not look on the sin that his son was bearing. He gave that up. A relationship that the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And again, that is a foundational truth to Christianity. Three personalities, one God. And he even gave us examples of that. A trinity, you take water. Water is liquid. Its chemical formula is H2O. If you heat water to 212 degrees Fahrenheit or higher, it becomes vapor or steam. And what is its chemical property? H2O. Or you can live in Montana, usually in December, and we would form ice. The solid form, the chemical formula is H2O. That's very much like a picture of God triunially. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All God, three different personalities of the same. That's who Jesus was. He did not give up what he was to become only human. He was born in a manger, yes. In fact, it tells us next that he took on the likeness of men. He made himself of no reputation. That is, he gave up things. And let me ask, let me ask something now. This is, uh, he was described as a man that was meek. How many of you here today, without raising your hands, because I wouldn't incriminate anyone, would see value in meekness? Most of the world would call it weakness. Moses was said to be a very meek man, one of the meekest men that worked, that would lived on the planet at that time. And he didn't start out that way. There's a characteristic of meekness that's amazing. And that is to have the power to do anything, but choosing to do it for the betterment of those around you. Someone has said this, 
is there are people of employment. It was some that was, he, this guy was really good at placing people in the right job. And he was interviewed by a journalist. He said, how do you, you're, you're really good at that. How do you know that? I mean, what, how do you, he says, well, there's a difference between responsibility and privilege. You want to find what a person's character is? Give them privilege. Responsibility, he said, you can either pay them enough or enough power over the top of them. They'll perform responsibilities, but give them privilege, and you'll see who they really are. Very true, isn't it? Most of the time, someone that's been given excess privilege is looking only to themselves. Uh, we have trust funders. We have, you can go on and on. It's amazing. Our world is captured by overprivileged people that aren't really interested in anyone other than themselves. Privilege is really a line definer. Jesus Christ had all of the privileges, all of the power, all of the position, and he set those aside. Self-emptying is the word to choose to be your savior, to be my savior at a massive cost, a massive cost. Do you see the difference? All of those things that he gave up, literally, to me, I have, I have written on the side of my notes, true meekness. He had the power to do anything he wanted to do, and he still chose to love us. John 13, as they're gathered around, that picture denotes the communion, the time of their last supper together, he and his disciples, 11 of them, 12 originally. And who would you make the guest of honor at your last time being together with the disciples? There's one of those that's going to betray you, which Jesus knew. It wasn't a secret to him. It was a secret to everyone else. And on that night, to the right hand of him, that very night of which he would be betrayed by that one, he made the place of honor to Judas Iscariot. My friends, that's love. <laughs> that's, that's beyond love, isn't it? And as he left, they were trifling about who was the greatest. Who was the greatest? <laughs> Jesus being that one of example and illustration, uh, girded himself with a towel and began washing their feet. His parting shot on that night was, I'm going to give you a new commandment. Love the Lord thy God, and they will know you are my disciples by how much you love each other. That seems to be absent from our world today, isn't it? The division. All of the different ways to divide people is at an accelerated level. That's what you read in the news is more schisms and more divisions and all of that. Jesus, what would he say today? Who would be Jesus to them today? It's just like this illustration we have right now. But let's keep going. He set aside his position. He emptied himself. He accepted a servant's place. Just as he was all God... It says that he took upon him the form. That same word form that you found in verse 6 is the same one. Morphe of a servant. Internally, something that was fixed, he became a servant. Uh, Mark chapter 10, which Mark's whole focus is on service. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus' own words. He says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto or to be served, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. That was his whole purpose in coming. He accepted that role. As I've spoken about in John chapter 13, he made service his number one priority. He accepted it. 
Now one of the things, if you're God and you've set aside your position and you have literally set aside privileges and you have taken the servant's role, you're going to have to work among sinful people. You're going to be right in the middle of a group of sinful people. So it's it's how it's going to be. The last part of verse 7, he says, was made, it's probably better, became like the likeness of men. He became like men. Now, I, w- I want to make sure that you understand, yes, he was all God, but did Jesus get hungry? Yes. Why do you think Satan, after 40 days of fasting, and the Holy Spirit delivered Jesus into the proving ground of temptation? And the first temptation that Satan gave him was food. (laughs) I would work on me if I'd fasted for 40 days. Whoa, brother, I would take that bait probably. Jesus, however, much more pure in form and kind said, "Uh, no, no, I'm going to partake of the word of God, the bread of life, who he became, literally. But he thirsted, he hungered, he suffered, Pain racked his body. There's a death that is probably the most terrible that anyone could possibly, not probably is. It's called crucifixion. There's nothing more painful known to man than crucifixion. And my Savior, Jesus Christ, literally bore that pain, that suffering, excruciating, and he felt it just as we would. In fact, uh, temptation even. Some would say, well, he's God. He, he, could, he was tempted just like us but without sin. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. That gives me confidence, actually, because I'm probably just like some of you this week. I've failed. I've fallen. I've been tempted and sinned. I'm not perfect, but I'm forgiven. And to know that Jesus Christ suffered the same temptations as me and did not fall, but he says, come to the throne of grace boldly. Isn't that good to know? My Savior felt everything that I felt. And didn't fail. That's confidence. He was working among sinful people. He was doing what needed to be done. He was all that humanness could be. He talked like they talked. He lived where they lived. He, uh, you know, some have said, isn't that which, which uh, maybe we've even sang that today. Uh, there's a little uh, Christmas hymn um, where he didn't cry. Baloney. <laughs> that little baby cried just like any other baby. He was all human. He would have felt cold. And guess what? Mary had to change his diaper. <laughs> That's okay. Because he had to be all man. But when you make him just man or just God, he cannot save you. Because he has to be both. I remember there was a cult. A group, uh, uh, several men came here and they were were asking me questions, and I said, well, let's just cut right to the chase. I asked them who they were representing, and they stated that case. And I said, then let's talk about Jesus, because that seems to be the point of which we'll differ. Let's just get it right out in the open. Let's talk about it. I said, you, you say Jesus is not God. How could you possibly trust him for salvation? Well, what do you mean? I said, if he was just man and he lived a perfect life, he could have saved himself. But if he's not God, he could not save you. Let's go. That's what they did. They literally left because it was another Jesus. Isn't that true? 
Absolutely. This Jesus, this one that is described by Paul in Philippians, is the real Jesus. The real Jesus that the world wants to know today. We need him like we've never needed him. Like we've never needed him. He adapted to their culture, the experiences of that time. He didn't, come in any, he didn't come in an outer space suit or something new. He knows how far time will go. He didn't appear at the very end of that and appear that way. In fact, he appeared in a manner that most would have missed him, and they did. He came as a humble servant to change them from the inside out. And they wanted a king. <laughs> they wanted an earthly king. What do we want today? We want somebody to rescue us from this nonsense and the economic peril and all of the things that are onslaught from climate change and you name it. And that's what Antichrist will look like. He will look just like that. He will bring an agenda that will look like it should be hook, line, and sinker swallowed by the average person because he's going to save them from themselves. And let me say this as loud without being that loud. The biggest problem in this world is the same as it was when Adam and Eve were walking the garden. It's sin, and we need a savior, and only sinners can be saved. That's why we talked about church light or Christian light, L-I-T-E, a couple of weeks ago. Maybe it was last week. There was a beer commercial back in the 80s that it was, let's see, what it tastes great but less filling. Great advertisement. I think it's really carried over into what church is, is in the 21st century. We're Christian light today. It sounds great, less truth. It's, not, it's very true, isn't it? Uh, the church of Laodicea in chapter 3 of Revelation. Uh, Jesus is asking, we don't, I don't even know what you stand for. I, I think we just read somebody there. How is that going to come for Jesus Christ and say, you're like Santa Claus? What's the Bible for? And less truth, more confusion. Actually, yeah, yeah. And, and actually, if you have less truth, you have more confusion, right? <laughs> Aha! Isn't that what we're living in today? I really sorrow for our young people, our teenagers, our youth growing up, these little guys sitting in the back. Truth seems so far away, and yet God wants us to know the truth. But it'll have to be from the Bible. The truth can come from the Bible. There's a person within town that is actually teaching and preaching in a church that does not believe the Bible is true. Because it's old and it's archaic. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Stop for a second. Is it okay that truth is old? I think so. Got Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It still fits the model. It still fits perfectly of what happened here. I'm getting off base. Let's go back to our Jesus. To Jesus. Why did Jesus come this way? Why did God offer to give a Savior? Uh, that's out of love. That's what he's desired from each one of us. He wants us to be like Jesus, but he also desires a fellowship, a love. He wants us to love him. You can't force that. Now you say, well, God can do anything. He will never force you to love him because that's not love. Uh, a husband and wife relationship, one that's going to get married, the wife says, I will make him love me. Ah, sorry, that's a timeout. It's not going to work. It doesn't work that way or vice versa. Why would Jesus come? Paul Harvey told a story many, many years ago, and I've heard it in different lights, different phases, but it goes like this. There was a town in Midwestern United States, and it was Christmas Eve. And there was a man and wife and children, and the wife and the children had trusted Christ as Savior. The husband 
father had not and was actually quite vocal against it. He thought it was a joke, it was a myth, it made no sense at all. And on that particular night, the rest of the family, the wife and the children, went to a candlelight service. Uh, he stayed home and was reading the paper. And a storm came up. It was a, a pretty blustery kind of an evening. And all of a sudden, his silence was interrupted by a banging on the window. And it continued. And so he parted the drapes, and there were sparrows that were caught in this, this blow, this blizzard-type condition. And they saw the light from the house and were trying literally to, and they were hitting the window, literally you know, killing themselves almost. And you've seen it. It's probably frightened you at a time when a bird goes boing, and they're stunned at best, and they get up. And this was quite like that. And he's, all of a sudden, compassion goes out from him. He says, oh, my goodness. I mean, I want to help them. And so he turns the light on outside of the, of the house because it had gotten dark. And the birds, he was trying to shoo them away and to literally save their lives. And he thought, ah, I've got an idea. I'm going to go out into the barn and open the door and turn the lights on. And then I'll even take some breadcrumbs and try to lead them in and shoo them in there. All to no avail. To no avail at all. He, and was he trying to help? Absolutely was trying to help them at his highest level. And all of a sudden, a thought came to him. How could I get them to understand what they need to do? I mean, they just need to, I, I, can, I can see what they need to do. I can, it's just not working. But if I could be like them, if I could be a bird and communicate to them, then I could tell them where safety is. And at that very moment, he heard the church bells ring. And he fell to his knees. And he said, that's what Jesus did. That's exactly what Jesus did. That's why Jesus had to come. He had to be just like us to lead us, to show us, to illustrate for us what love really looks like. And he took our penalty. He went even beyond that. To know that God died for me. I, I, I'm sorry, I just, I, I can't grab that. Why would he do that? Why would it Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 say that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world? Why would he give help from heaven in Genesis chapter 3 after Adam and Eve had sinned? Friends, you can't miss it. He loves us. He loves us. You can't take anything else from the message that, that God poured out through his entire word is he loves us. And he proved it. God certainly did. He gave us his very son, the very essence of God, the very nature, the deity of Jesus Christ that became human, that set aside his position to be everything that we needed to show us the way. But it's even deeper than that. He took a selfless posture. Let's continue on. He said, being found in the fashion or the external, the schema of man, he humbled himself humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Humbled himself. Humbled himself. How good are you at humbling yourself? <laughs> Boy, it is no fun, is it? One of the neatest things to learn is how to humble yourself. And here's the tricky part. If you turn around and say, wow, I was really humble, you've just lost it. <laughs> Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not thinking of yourself at all. 
That's exactly what Jesus Christ did. I think in whichever situation you found him, he was always usually prefaced it in prayer. He was up early in the morning praying to the Father. That's, that's what he was. That's who he was. And then, you know, I think of miracles and the healings that he did. He never did it for someone that came and said, prove that you are Jesus, the Son of God. You give me a miracle and I'll believe. Not one time will you find in the, between those covers of the Bible where he was forced into or told and succumbed to doing a miracle because someone asked him to do it. You know what it did? It was a breaking of the heart. As someone diseased or demon-possessed would, oh, just in compassion would care for them and deal with that. That's Jesus. That's my Jesus. That's the Jesus of the Bible. Selfless. 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 Obedient even to the death of the cross, as it says. But there's another part of my Jesus. He will ascend to be an exalted king. After all of that, Jesus will be exalted. In verse 9, it says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now that's a, there's two ways to bow your knee. You can do it now or you can do it later. You can do it now through the course of grace or later at the course of judgment. Even Satan will bow his knee to Jesus Christ. Every demon will bow their knee to Jesus Christ. Every single knee will bow to Jesus Christ. He will be exalted. Even though he has left his position, he has humbled himself, a selfless posture. He has given away or given up riches, glory, honor, there's coming a day that he will literally be the exalted king of the universe. That day is coming. That day is coming. This unfolding of these several verses that we've looked at today, there's no question about it happening. He is Lord. He is God. Romans chapter 10 speaks very clearly. Verses 9 and 10 about this event taking place now. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. When one would bow his knee to Jesus, that one that loved you so much, then you will be saved. That's the Jesus of the Bible. That's the Jesus that God gave. Where are you at in that? What will you give Jesus this Christmas? What will you give back? Well, if you're not saved, the first thing he is, is he's not asking you to give him anything except your heart. If you don't know Jesus Christ personally, he literally with open arms has walked the walk, talked the talk, given up his position, given up his privilege to let you have an opportunity to be eternally saved with him. With open arms, with love, he is asking you to come to him. Now, if you do know Jesus and have for a period of time, you may have gotten lax. You may have slipped away. You may have not seen the importance or lost the freshness of what Jesus Christ accomplished. 
Uh, my question to you is then, what will you give to Jesus this season? That's a good question for myself as well. I'm not being over the top pointing at you. I'm at, back at myself. It was what I was doing all week. What could I give to Jesus? Emmanuel, God with us. Do you know this passage that we've just went through actually allows us to see what would be a perfect gift for Jesus and for those around us. But before we look at that, uh, there's a, I told you that Bruce Carroll, um, I don't know that he wrote the song, but he sang it. And it came to my mind through this week. I'd like to read you the lyrics. He came home from work last night to find that she is gone. Now he's spending his first Sunday sitting in the pew alone. There are whispers all around him. His heart breaks in two. He's wondering who will reach out and help him make it through. Who will be Jesus to him? Who will show the love that restores him again? He doesn't need a judge. He needs a friend. Who will be Jesus to him? She has a reputation like the woman at the well. The only love she ever knew was the kind that she buys and sells. But her thirsty heart is searching for a love that will be true. The Savior cries for her to see himself in me and you. Who will be Jesus to her? Who will show the love that's commanded in his word? Will she see in us the mighty God we serve? Who will be Jesus to her? Wounded people everywhere, and when they look at us, do they see Jesus there? Who will be Jesus to them? Who will show the love that restores them again? Oh, they do not need a judge. They need a friend. Who will be Jesus to them? Who will be Jesus to them? There was an American serviceman that was abroad during Christmas time. And it was a war-ravaged street, and there was a little boy that he saw that was just wandering through the streets. And somehow amidst all of this chaotic war zone was a little tiny bakery that had somehow still making its goods. And this little boy was just wandering, and the serviceman could tell that he was hungry. And he slipped inside the bakery, and he bought a dozen donuts. And he brought them out, not knowing this little boy, and he handed them and said, son, there you go. And the little boy looked in the bag, he looked up at him, and he looked, are you Jesus? <laughs> what will we do this season? And not just this season. Will you be Jesus? Or will we be like Kevin? You'll be Jesus. <laughs> Choice is yours. But let's go back and finish our text now. It's interesting to notice that this verses 6 through 11 has told us about our Jesus, the real Jesus, the only Jesus that Paul promoted and spoke of, the Jesus that we are to literally speak to the world. But look at this. This is how he opened it up. He uses Jesus, this Jesus we feel that we see as an illustration. Verses 3 and 4 of the same chapter, Philippians chapter 2 says this. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Let not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The greatest gift that you could give to Jesus is letting him work on the inside and you be Jesus to someone else. As Jesus left, I'm 
I'm sure the, the 11 guys that were left behind, they were really uptight about the fact that Jesus was going to leave. They didn't want him to go. They'd been walking for three years, and they thought there was a new king coming, and we're going to finally beat the Romans. And he says, no, I must leave so that the Comforter can come, the Holy Spirit can come, and literally dwell within you. And that's what we've been working on in Acts. Every single person that's trusted Christ as Savior, the Holy Spirit comes to live within them. Every single person. It tells us in 2 Corinthians. It tells us in Romans. It tells us many places that literally the Holy Spirit will indwell you. That's why we can say with confidence that literally the things that seem impossible to us. Look at this. This is another impossibility from the Old Testament, and yet it goes right down that line. Micah chapter 6. Uh, the, the audience of which Micah, the prophet, he was a fig picker. He was just a normal guy that God had po- pulled out and asked. And the Israelites were wondering, well, what does God want? What does he want from us? Does he want more offerings? Does he want a thousand rams? A thousand bulls? I mean, you can just feel the frustration. And finally, <laughs> the reply comes back this. This is what God wants. In fact, I'll start in verse 7 of chapter 6 of Micah. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give him my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now that's interesting. Most of us, we are in a buy and sell bartering kind of a thing. If we can buy God off, it feels better. I don't know why, but it's, right? Problem. Doesn't work. Can't happen. You can't buy God. You can't buy the Holy Spirit. You can't buy or sell it. But look at what he wants. Verse 8, he has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require. Listen carefully now. This is what God wants. But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. It's easier to give thousands of rams, isn't it? (laughs) But isn't that what being Jesus is? Is just that very thing? But it'll take Jesus in your heart, the Holy Spirit living within you, to be able to do what is asked of God. That's all he's asking of you if you don't know Jesus today, is come to him. Come to him. The last thing I would like to ask you or speak of is this. In this, this works for me. Maybe it doesn't for you, but for me. I'm, all of the things I've spoke of is in the sense of the magnificence of Jesus Christ, living that position, that sovereignty of which he's fully and completely God, and he... He left those behind. He left his privileges behind. He left things that were his to put on the external to become like mankind, to be all man, all God, to be a savior. Would be like this. If a murderer was appearing before a judge and the judge was on his bench and had his robe on and all of the evidence was placed and the judge said guilty, you are sentenced to hang. Okay, the guy's guilty. Evidence proves it. But now what makes it different is the judge gets up from the bench. He takes off his robe. He goes down and he gets handcuffs placed on him. And he goes out to the gallows and takes the sentence of the man that was sentenced to death. That's what Jesus did for me and what he did for you. That is truth. That is what the world today needs to see. And the only way they'll see it is certainly from the word of God. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. But it's when men and women are able to be able to look like Jesus, to be illustrative of Jesus, 
so they can see the love of Jesus in them. Friends, that's the best gift we could give to Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the word. Thank you for your love that was expressed in so many ways. So many ways. There are so many things that are unexplainable. The very Jesus that was there at Genesis 1-1, God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Tells us in Job chapter 38 that the angels were literally praising the God for what he had created. That same Jesus put aside his privileges, his positions, his position to take up the likeness of men. Sacrificing his privilege, sacrificing his position in meekness, even going to the death on the cross. Out of his riches, when we were poor, became rich because of him. What a message. And our world needs it desperately. Father, we humbly bow before you, just as our Savior was so illustrative of selflessness and humility. May these coming days, not just this season in which we find ourselves surrounding ourselves around the the birthplace of Jesus Christ, but literally who Jesus truly is. May the blinders of the world that Satan has so adequately placed before them that, Father, they would be torn down. That in the light, the light of you, Father, would shine brightly against the darkness of the society we find ourselves engaged in. And, Father, I pray for someone that may be here today that doesn't know Jesus Christ personally. May the Holy Spirit work in the heart of that person. That Jesus today would find a home, would find a place for a gift to be received from that one that gave it all. That not only was in a position of judge, but also the one that took the penalty. Father, go with us the rest of this day. Give traveling mercies to those that are doing that. But above all, Father, may we be having our hearts or minds turned toward you. May this be a time of thanksgiving, of rejoicing, of giving you all that we have to you. Thank you for what you're going to accomplish. In Jesus' precious holy name, amen.